Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, guys. And um, yeah, welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, shall we say a thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Mark? Absolutely, yeah. Did you want to do the honours this week as I did last week? Oh, go on then. So, a huge thank you to Hannah, Kirsty Murden, 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 Ryan Charlwood, Marie Harper, 71229, who I can't remember your real name, but you came and joined the group, didn't you? And I remember thinking that's a funny way to put, but it is on how you are on Patreon. Um, Alicia Mitchell, Rachel Mulholland, woohoo, woohoo. Yeah. Why, why have you put a woohoo? Uh, no, Rachel did it herself. So. I love that. Rachel, woohoo. Kate I wrote these. Hayes. That's why Bethan's asked. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd just put that in for some reason. No, no, no. Kate Hayes, Joy Nicholson, Malaki, Malaki? Malachi. 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 Jesus, yeah. sorry, Malachi. I've not known, I've not seen your name before. I've never known your name before. So that's a that's a new one. I like that name. I think it's a um, biblical name. Is Malachi a boy or a girl's name? I'm guessing it could be both. I just don't know. But hi, Malachi. Hi, William Menmuir, Maria Mack and Barry Higgins. That is possibly the worst I have ever done it in the history of the show. So if you're on this week, welcome. There's some tough ones there, to be (laughs) fair. We've got someone who's calling themselves a number. Um, but thank you to all of you and thank you to our existing supporters too on Patreon. If you want to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and we are honestly blown away. So many of you have been signing up and yeah, it always just blows our mind and we're so, so grateful. It does make a huge difference. So on to this week's episode then. It sees us venture into the world of aviation. And we've been here before, of course, in our season three episode entitled Mass Murder in the Skies, for example. If you've listened to that episode, then you will probably recall the harrowing details of First Officer Andreas Lubit locking his co-pilot outside of the cockpit and then proceeding to slam the plane into the side of a mountain deep in the French Alps, killing everybody on board. That was a truly disturbing case. Gosh, that was one that just, you c- I couldn't shake for ages. Same, It was yeah. just, oh, horrendous. I mean, talk about a living nightmare. It, it absolutely would have been mm-hmm. because the crew and the passengers were aware that something horrific was about to go down. Um, so, yeah, an, an horrific case. And then, of course, more recently, we covered the devastating mid-air bombing of a Pan Am passenger jet over the Scottish town of Lockerbie. Both shocking cases, and both cases which featured huge aeroplanes carrying many dozens of passengers. And whilst today's case is no less shocking, it does see us turn our attention to a much smaller aircraft, a Piper PA-46 Malibu light aircraft, which crashed into the English Channel in 2019, killing both the pilot, 59-year-old family man David Ibbotson, and the plane's only passenger, 28-year-old Emiliano Sala, a professional footballer about to embark on the next chapter in his glittering career. I am so glad that you're covering this and that we're looking at this case because I remember it in the news, but I just don't know much about the background to the plane or the flight or or what happened afterwards, whether or not there were convictions. So I'm I'm really interested to hear this week's episode. Yeah, it's um it's one I remember from the time, but I I paid attention because it was a huge story, but it kind of went on and on and you kind of lose track of some of it. So there there is some really interesting facets to this which of course we'll come on to. And Bethan asked earlier for me to just write a little something about how the kind of behind the scenes of researching and writing this has been to post on socials and I said to you, didn't I, it has been a really tough episode to research and write. It's taken a long time and it's you go into quite a kind of dark space for something like this. So I would say they're all difficult to research and write, but actually some aren't. Some are pretty quick and this was the opposite. I was saying, wasn't I, that some cases almost write themselves. You get the spark of, of a case and then you just get going and it almost just flows and then other cases, you know you want to cover them. And and sometimes, you like, there's been cases where I've put them off a few times because I just can't get, get it written. I can't get into the episode. But we really want to share more, don't we? We want to share a bit more about 
writing and the show and the behind the scenes stuff. So hopefully you guys will find it interesting to get a bit of an insight into why we pick the cases and what we are doing with the episodes. Yeah, I think it's an interesting side of it, which we've probably not shared so much before. So we'll definitely do more of that. No, not at all. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Sometimes the case just really is a really, it really sticks with you and is... Mm is hard but then that I guess you know then don't you that it you need to share that person's story yeah definitely at 1 30 a.m on Friday the 18th of January in 2019 Emiliano Sala was in bed asleep at the home he shared with his rescue dog Nala in Nantes in northern France when his phone rang it was his agent informing him that his transfer to Premier League club Cardiff City would be going ahead later that day this was news to Emiliano The proposed transfer had been rumbling on in the background for weeks now, but it was far from a done deal as far as he was concerned. His agent explained that a private jet was on standby and that he would need to travel to the Welsh capital in a matter of hours to undergo a strict medical before putting pen to paper on the £15 million transfer deal. When the call ended, Emiliano was left in a state of bewilderment. Although he'd had reservations about the transfer, he knew that it would likely go ahead, but he thought he would at least have a bit more notice than this. Having grown up in Argentina, Emiliano had lived in France since the age of 20. He was 28 now. He spoke the language fluently and had made a home for himself in Nantes, where he played for the city's League One club. He had a life there. Friends, teammates, a house hidden in the countryside where he could escape the pressures of fame and football... And all of that was about to change now, and in an instant. So you might be thinking, why? Why would he want to leave everything he knew behind and move to a country where he didn't know anyone and where he couldn't even speak the language? Well, Emiliano was ambitious. He dreamt of playing in the Premier League, and although not necessarily motivated by money, it would be a move that would likely set him up for life. I mean, that was going to be my my thought was... Why would you do that? Well, he wants to be... Well, he is a professional footballer. He, They get paid quite a lot, don't they? I don't really know what they get paid, but they get paid quite a lot. And my other half's really into football. And a lot of the teams seem to be from all over the world in the British leagues. Like, they seem to be major. They seem to be like a really big draw to people mm-hmm. from all around the world. And you see these teams communicating incredibly on the pitch, but some of them don't speak any English. Like, they just all... I'm going to sound so ridiculous here, but they speak like the language of the game, of just like playing football. And And it's incredible. And just excellent teamwork. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right though. And um, Emiliano was, he really wasn't motivated by money in particular. That was probably a secondary factor in this. He was a kind of a homebody. He wasn't that typical footballer out on the town dating loads and loads of girls he lived a bit of a quiet life he was staunchly catholic and he worshipped at the church in Nantes and sort of solace in in his faith and um, yeah very different to a lot of the footballers we see certainly in this country I don't know what the rest of them are like in in France Mm. and other parts of the world but it was interesting to learn that so at Nantes Emiliano had been earning less than £10,000 a week which is still a great wage But at Cardiff, his wages would soar to £50,000 a week. A week, oh my gosh. Yeah, so this is big money. And he was earning big money already, like I say, 10 grand a week, but it was going to more than, you know, fivefold increase. And actually, besides all of that, the club really needed him. He was a champion striker, a top goal scorer, and Cardiff City was hanging on to their Premier League status by a thread. Surely Emiliano would be their saviour, a hero in his newly adopted country of Wales. Emiliano was willing to give it his all, but as I said earlier, he did have reservations. What if it didn't work out and he was scapegoated for the club's relegation? It would surely see the end to his Premier League career before it had barely got off the ground. But all things considered, it was a risk he was willing to take. And so, after a sleepless night and filled with anxiety at the move to Cardiff, Emiliano boarded the Swiss private jet bound for Wales just a few hours after that call. Can you imagine as well, like, the wages that are being discussed and that sort of thing, but being Emiliano and just kind of like, you need to get on this plane at this, like, in a few hours. It's just such the not the life that we lead. <laughs> it's not, and it was very much a sleepless night, so he'd been woken up mm. out the blue 
in the middle of the night, couldn't get back to sleep, a few hours later he's on a private jet bound for Wales. He will arrive there and not know anyone. He's probably never visited that country before. It doesn't speak the language. So, you know, a crazy day ahead of him. It, it certainly was. But as it turned out, that Friday was also a great day. Emiliano passed his medical with flying colours and he was given a very warm welcome by his new teammates. He was shown around the stadium and presented to the nation's media in celebration of what was a record signing for Cardiff City at the time. That initial anxiety about moving to a new country, leaving his beloved FC Nantes behind, soon fizzled into excitement at the prospect of a new life. After a busy day, and it it would have been a super busy day, with his head likely spinning, Emiliano retired to his hotel room. He was keen to get back to Nantes for the weekend before returning to Cardiff for his first training session the following Tuesday. He had a lot of loose ends to tie up back home. He would need to pack, put Nala into kennels until he could arrange for her to come over permanently, say goodbye to his teammates and friends. There would have really been an awful lot for him to do in as short a space of time as like 48 hours, really. Oh, so he's even got like a dog at home and like, yeah. it's just crazy. Oh, wow. So he's, sorry really if short I completely notice. missed that. Normally no, I no. pay lots of attention to dogs, but... um. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't pay enough attention to a dog. But yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? Like, it's very, very short turnaround. It really is. Really short notice. Even though it had been rumbling along since December, since before Christmas, it was one of those things. It was like, yeah, we're kind of heading towards this. It it will probably happen. I'm resigned to that fact. I've got some reservations, but I'll probably do it. And then it's like, right, you're getting on a plane later and it's all kicking off. It's all going to happen. So yeah, it was last minute. Now, there is a little bit of disagreement over what happens next. The next day was a Saturday, and this was a day Emiliano was going to fly back to France from Cardiff. Some people involved in his transfer say Cardiff City hadn't offered to organise his flight back to Nantes. Cardiff City say they had offered to arrange a commercial flight for him. Uh, One person was quoted as saying that Emiliano was in his hotel room on that Saturday, desperately scrolling through his phone, trying to find a flight. So I don't know what the truth is. Oh my gosh, yeah. And they were kind of saying, you know, this is crazy. We've got a £15 million striker here having to organise his own bloody flight back to France to sort all of his shit out before he comes back here. I think Cardiff City... Yeah, like, surely Cardiff City should have arranged it like that's what i think I would they did they arranged it over there yeah i i think they did to be fair um but it would have been a scheduled flight it would have been a commercial flight and i think the issue was that there was no direct flight from cardiff city airport into nantes um or from any local airport so emiliano would have had to fly via the netherlands or fly directly from cardiff to paris and then get a train to nantes and basically this would have been an eight hour door-to-door journey and he just didn't have the time for that he had way too much to do in way too little time um so yeah he was sort of struggling yeah, to find some other they managed options. to get him a, a private jet over there to sign well, I don't, the contract i don't know if that was them that could have been the agent that could have been FC Nantes had arranged that. I don't know. Mm. We don't know. But yeah, he was kind of not stranded because he could have got a commercial flight, but it would have been an absolute ball ache. So yeah, he's kind of looking at options. And the man who would help to facilitate Emiliano's transfer to Cardiff, a guy called Willie Mackay, had a son called Jack who played for Cardiff City's under-23s at the time, and he could speak French. And they'd become aware that Emiliano was looking at some other flight options at this point. So Jack texted Emiliano and said his dad could arrange for a private plane to take him back to France that day, that Saturday, and then bring him back on the Monday, ready for training on the Tuesday. And Emiliano was keen. He inquired about the cost and Jack said, don't worry, my dad's going to cover that. And to be fair, his dad, along with his son Mark, who was Jack's brother, had just made around about one and a half million pounds on this transfer deal. So it was no skin off their nose. So Emiliano gratefully accepted Jack's offer and the flight was arranged. Emiliano was surprised when he arrived at the airport later that day. The plane that was about to take him across the channel and back home to Nantes for the weekend was a lot smaller than the one that had brought him here. It was a light aircraft rather than a jet and only had room for four passengers. But still he trusted his pilot, David Ibbotson, and it was only him so he didn't need, you know, loads of room for loads of other passengers. And together David and Emiliano made their way out of the UK 
and towards Nantes, flying at about 5,000 feet. So just for context, this would be a 300-mile journey, 150 miles of which would be over the English Channel. On a light aircraft, the journey would take about an hour and a half, and the plane would pretty much fly in a straight line from Cardiff Airport over Exeter, over the Channel, over the Channel Islands, and then on to Nantes, which is in northwestern France, which I want to keep calling Nantes, and I had to write Nantes at the top <laughs> of this script. I was like, why is there just the big word Nantes on this? Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I wanted to pronounce it Nantes or Nantes, and it would have sounded like Neither Nantes. of which are correct. <laughs> no, so it's Nantes. So about an hour into this journey, as a plane neared the shores of France, both Emiliano and David Ibbotson heard a loud bang. David would later describe it as a boom. A short while later, a low-level mist began to filter into oh the cabin. Oh my god. Which is shocking. I mean, these would have been hugely alarming things to happen during a flight, particularly on a light aircraft. But can you imagine that happening mid-flight, Bethan? So when we were coming back from Jamaica the first time, one of the engines caught fire on the runway and we ended up not coming back that day and it was absolutely terrifying. And that was on the ground, yeah. up, on the runway. Um, and when we got back, I'd Googled it and found out that it, it can just happen and it's a lot less rare than I thought it would have been. And if it happens when you're in the air, you know, commercial jets have got, what, eight engines or something crazy like that. So if one goes, it's not that bad. Like they can get somewhere and land. Mm. On this, I mean, this is a tiny plane. We'll make sure there's a picture in the social media um, collage that we put up, but this is tiny. Anything like a bang or what you might think might be smoke or what, like mist, oh, that is not nice. And I think any sounds, any sort of rumblings from the engine, any sudden jerky movement, you would really feel mm -hmm. that on a small plane. Yeah, you feel turbulence bad enough anyway, don't yeah. you? But yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, so, um, so you know, quite shocking, really. And due to the language barrier, the men weren't able to communicate with each other. But I imagine there were concerned, perhaps even frightened glances being exchanged at this point. Because mm, you've not got, like, the captain in the pilot in the cockpit well, he, well, out of the way. He'll no. be maybe behind a little door, but I don't think he would be in this kind of flight. I think he might even just look over his shoulder and you're sat there, but, like, behind him like it absolutely is how it would be yeah yeah, yeah I, I um i listened to a brilliant podcast on bbc sounds called transfer which is a nine-part podcast about this and it goes into a lot of detail i've consulted multiple other sources of course but it was um a really fascinating insight into what happened and i think somebody on that podcast described this kind of plane as the pilot could literally sort of reach his hand out behind him as he sits uh, in his seat and touch the hand of a passenger. That's how small it is. Yeah. So the journey did continue, but about 10 minutes before landing, as if things couldn't get any worse at this point, an alarm sounded indicating that the plane was about to stall. David did manage to land that plane without stalling, but it was another very concerning incident. And I'm sure both men exited that light aircraft feeling hugely relieved that they had made it to Nantes-Atlantique Airport in one piece. The weekend passed without further incident as Emiliano said his goodbyes and packed his things. In a message to a friend, he described the plane which had brought him over to France as a cuckoo, French slang for a rickety old plane. And he genuinely had reservations about returning to Cardiff on it. But the flight had been arranged and the language barrier probably didn't help either. And besides, he had arrived safely. Maybe all light aircrafts were like this. David Ibbotson, the plane's pilot, also had concerns upon arrival. He'd posted a Facebook update alluding to his lack of experience with the plane's landing system. Additionally, he'd found the left brake pedal to be faulty when he tried to turn off the runway. David reported his concerns to the plane's operator, David Henderson, so another David, who arranged for a French mechanic to inspect the brakes and carry out some further basic checks in order to ascertain the origin of that loud bang. It was hypothesised at the time that this could have been Emiliano's luggage sliding about in transit. They never really got to the bottom of it. That does make sense, because if my it other does, half is in van yeah. and something like falls over just in a van, yeah. the bang is really loud and i guess because it's just um like a big suitcase landing in the metal or something but 
I feel like though you'd look at where the bang came from and see your suitcase go like I don't know it that seems a bit like well it's probably this let's yeah. just leave it yeah I mean the mechanics look to see if you can find an answer can't find an answer so it's kind of well maybe it was that then it must have been that but yeah they didn't get to the bottom of it the mechanic also looked into what had caused that low level mist in the cabin but he couldn't find an answer to that either um, so I, I just wanted to explain a, a little here about how these kind of planes operate. So here we have David Ibbotson, he's the pilot. David Henderson, the man he reported his concerns to upon landing in France, was the plane's operator. That doesn't mean he owns the plane. That was a woman called Faye Keeley in this instance. She didn't really have anything to do with the plane. David Henderson managed it on a day-to-day basis. He was responsible for maintaining it, arranging flights on it, organising pilots for journeys, of which David Ibbotson was one. Sometimes David Henderson flew the plane himself. Oftentimes he flew the plane himself. And I just wanted to provide a bit of detail there because all of this will become very important later on. interesting. And also these these planes, we've kind of talked about some quite alarming things happening on board. These planes are treated very differently to larger jets that carry multiple passengers. So this flight shouldn't have been used for commercial purposes, as was the case on this occasion. So if a, if a plane isn't being used for commercial purposes, it's kind of okay to have bits sort of half falling off and it not to be 100% right. It's kind of normal to have a big sign on the dashboard saying autopilot not working and for it still to be flown and to carry passengers. But when it's carrying paying passengers, that is different. And although Emiliano wasn't paying for this flight, the man who organised it was. Freaks me out a little bit because they're in the air. Yeah. But at the same time, that's a bit like your own car. You can drive it how you want. But if you're a taxi driver, you have to be driving a certain standard and you have to have your car at a certain level of of repair and everything yeah. so that does make sense and but yeah this is a commercial flight you you're taking someone else as a business transaction you're not just two guys who have chosen to fly the plane that you know has something that doesn't work yeah and that is that is a totally different ball game There's a lot more red tape involved, rightly so, because the safety of the plane is of paramount importance then. And um, we will come on to that in in a lot more detail towards the end of the episode. The return flight was scheduled for a a 9am takeoff on the Monday. However, on Sunday afternoon, David Ibbotson, the plane's pilot, was informed that the plane's takeoff would be delayed until 7pm. And I kind of felt for Emiliano at this point because he's been in Nantes all weekend, super busy, tying up all those loose ends. He's due to depart Nantes Atlantique Airport at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. He would have probably got to Cardiff and to his hotel for midday and be checking in and have time to sort of relax and gather himself and get a good night's kip before his first training session. And that didn't happen. You know, we're looking at a 7pm takeoff now and he's due at training the following morning. And it's 7pm provided there's no delays. So he's not going to get to his hotel and all checked in until probably 11 o'clock potentially. And you kind of wound up from it then. So yeah, I did feel for him. Yeah. And you'd probably be thinking by now, I may as well have just got that train to this place, plane to that place, taxi, blah, blah, blah. It would have been a round trip of a number of hours but actually I've been waiting around for this anyway so wish I'd just bothered doing that now and I don't know what he did on that Monday having suddenly you know amassed an extra 10 hours that day uh, in Nantes in his hometown of Nantes we really don't know I'd like to think that he spent that time with friends and teammates perhaps because that was time that you know that was his last hours on this earth in a conversation with a pilot friend David Ibbotson said that he normally stowed his life jacket between the plane seats, but, quote, tomorrow I'll be wearing my life jacket, that's for sure. Mm. Winding up the call, he said, you know, if anything did happen, it might be your last chance to have a good old chat with me and a good old moan with me. His comments, made in jest, but hinting at reservations about the plane's safety, eerily echoed Emiliano's concerns at this point. So, you know, both of them concerned about this return flight because it had been so momentous on the way over there a couple of days earlier. So let's fast forward to that Monday now. It's 6.30 in the evening. 
Emiliano is dropped off at Nantes Atlantique Airport by a teammate, or former teammate. He boards a plane at around 7pm. It's cold and dark outside, and Emiliano is wrapped up warm for the journey. The plane does have heating, but it's not that sophisticated. Air is heated using the outside of the plane's exhaust and then pumped into the cabin, basically. We'll come back to that later. As the plane taxis to the runway, Emiliano scrolls through Instagram before sending a voice message to a WhatsApp group consisting of three of his oldest friends in Argentina. I love that he's sending a voice note because I love a voice note. You love a voice note, absolutely. And this was quite early for them, 2019. I, yeah. Yeah. The more I hear about Emiliano, the more I like him and I never really knew anything about him at the time. No, I I Um, didn't really, but... This episode is just fascinating. We're seeing so much more to this person and more more sides to somebody that potentially you would just see footballer on the telly. That's like a very 2D kind of character rather than this person. Um, So yeah, this is really interesting. And the the real like human bits, like he's sending a voice note to his to his oldest, like three of his oldest friends in Argentina, and they're still in a group chat. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. You're going to make me cry this episode or something, Mark. It wasn't one I thought would be one that I'd get all sad about. I know. Those friends were probably super proud of him and following his career. And he'd kept his feet on the ground and kept in touch with them. So he said in this voice note, and I have condensed it a little bit. Hello, my brothers. How are you? Boy, I'm tired. I was here in Nantes taking care of things. And it never stops. It never stops. Anyway, guys, I'm up on this plane that feels like it's falling to pieces. And I'm going to Cardiff. It's crazy. We start tomorrow. Training in the afternoon, guys, in my new team. Let's see what happens. So how's it going with you guys? All good? If in an hour and a half you have no news of me, I don't know if they are going to send someone to look for me because they cannot find me, but you will know. Man, I'm scared. So we see this casual tone being adopted again, the same tone we observed in David Ibbotson's telephone conversation with his friend the day before, Probably a little bit more serious here, but still a bit jovial. But I think it really does reveal an intense sense of fear in Emiliano as he boards that flight and prepares for takeoff. There is that real genuine concern here, isn't there? Where he's thinking, my gut's telling me this isn't right and I need to get this out and documented that you guys will know where I am and what's happening. Mm, It's just, oh, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? it? It is, yeah. The plane takes off at 7.15pm and zooms up into the night sky. Emiliano likely looks out of one of the small windows and back at the city is called home for years. A sense of realisation hitting him perhaps. This is it, no going back, the deal is done. As David Ibbotson ascends to around 5,000 feet, he dodges the cloud. He is using visual flight rules, which depends on the pilot's ability to see. So he's not using the instruments really there's two ways of flying these light aircraft visual flight rules or instrument flight rules and he's using visual flight rules Um, but there isn't a lot to see tonight it's dark and very cloudy and it's also raining as the plane begins its journey across the channel the two men see the odd tanker below huge ships reduced to the size of ants only visible by their lights the route across the channel just so happens to be at its widest point, 150 miles. It would take about 40 minutes to cross. At its narrowest point, the channel is only 20 miles wide, across the Dover Strait. It would only take about 5 minutes to cross there, but that's too far east. Soon, the bright lights of Jersey come into view, but they're likely looking very hazy to Emiliano. He's tired, it's been a busy weekend but he's also feeling sick and weak now, and his head is hurting, probably. He zones out and tries to understand where he is, perhaps. Is he on a plane? Is he really here? Or is this a dream? He passes out and falls into a deep, unconscious state, his head probably lolling about as David Ibbotson careers around the clouds. Oh no, this isn't to do with the exhaust fumes that you said about, is it? It it is, yeah. Oh, God. So uh, I'll come on to it in a bit more detail, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's carbon monoxide poisoning, essentially. (sighs) So I've used a little bit of creative license, but those are the symptoms of severe carbon monoxide poisoning. So at least he was unconscious, I guess. 
absolutely he wouldn't have known anything was happening uh it would have just been a very deep sleep but yeah he would have been feeling tired sick weak he probably would have had a headache he would have been very very confused so he probably would have been thinking is this a dream am i really here am i on this plane right now Mm. and yeah before he knows it he has gone into this deep unconscious state and david ibbotson doesn't notice that his passenger is now unconscious he's too busy trying to navigate the aircraft air traffic control come on the radio and tell him to ascend quickly He's dropped below 5,000 feet and is flying too low. It's okay to fly below 5,000 feet, but permission must first be granted. David climbs to 5,500 feet as he zooms over Jersey and towards Guernsey. It's getting cloudier now. He radios Jersey Air Traffic Control and requests permission to descend to 2,500 feet. Permission granted. Ahead of him he sees Casquette Lighthouse, which is located on a rocky island near to Alderney. It's been there for 300 years, helping ships to navigate across the channel. The things it must have seen, but it's visible to David now. As he begins a descent to 2,500 feet, he's less than a mile above sea level, and he sees the powerful light flashing five times every 30 seconds from this historic landmark. And apart from the clouds and the darkness, this is the last thing David will ever see. As his descent continues, he loses control of the plane and desperately attempts to gain height. But it's no good. The plane is dropping out of the sky like a stone now, hurtling towards the sea at 270 miles an hour, reaching a G-force of 11, breaking into pieces. Yeah, really speedy descent to the sea. Yeah. An hour after takeoff, it plummets into the sea around eight miles northwest of Alderney, close to Casquette Lighthouse. A few minutes after the crash, and Jersey Air Traffic Control alert Guernsey Coast Guard, and a search and rescue operation is launched. The plane has disappeared off the radar, so they know what's happened. Mm. Although the area is outside of the UK's area of responsibility, Her Majesty's Coast Guard send two helicopters to assist in the search for the aircraft. A French helicopter is also sent to participate in the search, as are Alderney and Guernsey lifeboats. Over the next three days, Guernsey police search a 1,700 square mile area across the English Channel. But at 3.15pm on the 24th of January in 2019, after a very thorough and extensive search, including 80 hours of combined searching undertaken by three planes, five helicopters and two lifeboats, the police announce that they have called off the search for the aircraft or any survivors. I get it. Like, I I appreciate that they can't just consistently be... That's a lot of manpower, that's a lot of time. But at the same time, like, whoever had to make that decision, I guess that must weigh so heavy on them because you just want them to keep looking and keep... If that was my loved one, if that was my family member or my friend... I wouldn't want them to call off the search, even though I can appreciate that that is a no. lot of searching and they've done all they can. I just wouldn't want them to call that off. No, it's so final. And you would, as a family member, as a loved one, you would be clinging to hope. And in these three days, during which time the search was taking place, there were all sorts of rumours and conspiracy theories that maybe the the men had managed to parachute out of the plane before it crashed into the sea. Maybe they were on some kind of life raft somewhere, floating in the English Channel and just waiting to be found. But of course that wasn't wasn't the case very sadly. But yeah, there's a, a real sense of finality when that search is called off, understandably, but very hard for the families. Meanwhile, 7,000 miles away, in Emiliano's home country of Argentina, his sister Romina is preparing to board a plane bound for the UK. She is desperate to get answers and to find her brother. In the days since Emiliano's disappearance, the family has consulted a psychic in Argentina who has told them that he is still alive, waiting in a cave on an island near Guernsey, ready to be found. And this breaks my heart because we do see this quite often don't we psychics or charlatans reaching out to a vulnerable family in such a desperate time it's so sad what i will say is i i've learned a lot about the english channel researching this case there's so much i didn't know about it and about the channel islands in particular 
So obviously we know about Jersey and Guernsey, those are the biggest islands, but there is Alderney, and there's all these other islands. So there's these tiny islands, and they're essentially just kind of big rocks that um, poke above the seabed, but they are big enough to for people to kind of be on and not to live on. But yeah, if they crashed or managed to land on the seabed somehow, it would potentially be possible that they could have swum to an island and be waiting there in a cave, seeking shelter from the winter and waiting to be rescued. So, you know, it was false hope, but it was hope for Romina mm. and for Emiliano's family back home. So, yeah, she was, you know, straight on a plane over to the UK. Very sadly, Emiliano was not found alive. On the 7th of February, the plane's wreckage was found and a body was recovered and taken to the Isle of Portland to be passed to the Dorset coroner. Later that day, Dorset police identified the body as Emiliano's by means of fingerprint evidence. And I won't go into loads of detail here, but uh, basically a GoFundMe page had been set up by Emiliano's family, which had raised over a quarter of a million pounds, and that was enough money to fund a private search of the seabed. And it was a brilliant search and expertly led. And within days, they had found Emiliano. And I think he was trapped under the wreckage on the seabed. And there was no sign of David Ibbotson when they performed that initial search. Because I seem to remember a number of quite high profile footballers were kind of um, very publicly saying, don't give up the search, like, let's keep looking. So I should imagine that they would have contributed in some way or something. So Yeah, it was very much footballers and fans contributed Mm. to that. On the 11th of February, the results of a post-mortem reported that Emiliano had died of head and trunk injuries, but toxicology results would later confirm a huge level of carbon monoxide poisoning. And I will sort of just go on to that later on in, in just a little bit of detail. Emiliano's body was taken back to Argentina on the 15th of February and his funeral was held in his hometown of Progreso the following day. And just so desperately sad that it has come to this right on the cusp of, you know, a huge move in his career. And I'm sure he would have taken Cardiff to new heights with his star goal scoring ability. Yeah, from but like it the all Premier came League to an end to so this. abruptly. Yeah. Now, the pilot kind of gets lost in a lot of this and certainly in a lot of the reporting. But there were two people on that plane. And whilst David Ibbotson was partially responsible for that crash, He was a human being. He was a good guy, a family man, and he lost his life that day too. Yeah, I I completely agree with you there because so often he's he's just not even talked about or thought about, and it's all I get. I get it. Celebrity, like you know, people who are celebrities will be focused on more. But yeah, this guy. I mean, Emiliano's body's been recovered his family get to give him a funeral i'm sure you're going to go on to it but we haven't heard anything about david's body being recovered yet no and as i said you know he's a family man he was 59 years old and yeah much loved a really fun guy and i'll talk about him more again a bit later on but um I, i must admit at the time this happened when they found emiliano's body and this search had been sort of orchestrated by his family I there was this kind of feeling that the pilot was responsible for this, solely responsible, which actually wasn't the case. But there was this feeling the pilot's solely responsible for this and he doesn't deserve to be found. And there was talk on the internet of people, just rumours, they were just unfounded rumours that, you know, that basically the search team were instructed not to recover David Ibbotson's body if it was there because he didn't deserve to have a final resting place. And that, oh my that's God, what that was, is horrific. Yeah, which I don't think anyone would, no. would do that. Even, you know, the family of a man who has died partially at his hands. So, you know, unfounded rumours, but there was talk of that. And David Ibbotson's family, spearheaded by his daughter, went on to raise enough money via crowdfunding to launch a private search of their own for their beloved father and husband. But the search failed, and David's body has never been recovered. His family never got to say goodbye to him, or lay him to rest, and David Ibbotson's body lies deep in the English Channel, near to that lighthouse that he saw in his final moments, 
and not far from Herd's Deep, which is a deep valley across the seabed, home to the wreck of the British submarine HMS Affray, which sank there in 1951, killing all 75 on board. Oh God, see I've said it before and I will say it again, but the deep, deep ocean does not, it's just, it's just scares me too much. We talked about this very recently with with what we all know has just happened recently. We talked about it when we were discussing the Titanic case. It's just, oh, I don't like it. And I found it fascinating, and I know I know some of our listeners will. Some probably won't, but I'm going to bore you anyway. So Go for it. This is the Seeing Red, a historical podcast, as we all know. Exactly, which we've been doing the last few weeks. <laughs> so just as an aside, Herd's Deep was also used by the British government as a dumping ground for both chemical and conventional weapons, in particular those left behind by the ousted German invaders of the Channel Islands in World War Two. So it's, I think it's about 150 miles long, so it's quite big, and I, I th- maybe up to 200 feet deep and up to a couple of, me- couple of miles wide. So it's a big sort of crevice in the seabed of the English Channel. Um, but I, I did find it fascinating looking into it because it's also home to SMS Baden, which was a German battleship used in the First World War, which the British acquired during the armistice and subsequently dumped there. And there's also, there was a load of like radioactive waste dumped there by the British government. And the government continued dumping stuff there until 1974. And I just thought the shit that goes on that you have no idea about. Yeah, just dump your rubbish in there. Yeah, all these, all these weaponry, and it just makes me think: what is the government doing right now? But we're we not, don't know. You know yeah, into those conspiracies, we don't know. But yeah, if they were doing this back then, uh, for you know, fifty years plus, what what are they doing now? And I also just thought, um, you know, Herd's Deep is quite quite a big valley in in the seabed, but David Ibbotson's body is near to that, and it's a a scene of such I don't know. Um, devastation really because there's weapons and there's battleships there it's just this weird place and his resting place is is near to that i can see why this case has got to you with thoughts like that and things that yeah that i think a lot of people wouldn't have even kind of made that Mm. link and and thought about him in that way yeah yeah Yeah. like i say a, a good guy and you know, he deserves to have a proper final resting place where his family can visit him, and that hasn't happened at all. The crash of this Piper Malibu light aircraft resulted in two separate prosecutions, and for two very different reasons. Firstly, David Henderson, the plane's operator, although he disputed the use of the term operator in court, was arrested at his home in Yorkshire on suspicion of manslaughter five months after the crash in June 2019. He gave a no-comment interview and the charges were eventually dropped, but he was subsequently charged with breaking civil aviation law, specifically with endangering the safety of an aircraft and attempting to discharge a passenger without valid permission or authorisation. And he pleaded not guilty to both charges and was granted bail until the 18th of October 2021. On that date, he then pleaded guilty to a charge of attempting to discharge a passenger without permission or authorization. And 10 days later, on the 28th of October, he was convicted on the charge of endangering the safety of an aircraft. And he was jailed for 18 months. So, essentially, David Henderson was organising commercial flights, which he wasn't authorised to do under the Civil Aviation Authority. He didn't have an air operator certificate, which he would have absolutely needed um, for arranging flights with paying passengers, whether he was the pilot on them or he was arranging for others to pilot them. So he didn't have that. And he was using a pilot, David Ibbotson, who wasn't qualified to fly at night. And David Henderson knew that. So when that fateful flight took off from Nantes-Atlantique Airport at quarter past seven in the evening on that cold, dark January night, he was complicit in that. And he was actually also really worried. He had grave concerns about that flight. In fact, he was texting David Ibbotson before the flight, discussing his concerns about the weather, the fact the flight was now going to be taking place at night, which hadn't always been the plan. Oh yeah, it was meant to be at 9am. Yeah, oh God. Yeah, in daylight, yeah. And David Henderson also tracked the progress of the flight on a flight radar, 
Such was his concern at David Ibbotson's ability to fly that plane in those conditions. And again, I'm not going to go into loads of detail here. You you hear it in the transfer podcast if you want to find out more. But David Henderson had been notified by the plane's owner, Faye Keeley, of two airspace infringements at the hands of David Ibbotson and had said that she didn't want him flying the plane again. And I think she banned him from flying her plane for six months. And also a passenger had made disparaging comments to David Henderson about David Ibbotson's flying ability. So he knew that David Ibbotson was not that competent a pilot. And that's why he was sending those paranoid messages to him right up until that flight, asking him if he was going to be okay flying in that weather on that plane at night. And that's why he tracked the progress of the flight in real time. And I think we've all done similar in different circumstances. Uh, I think, you know, when you feel out of control and worried, you desperately try to reassure yourself that everything's going to be okay. We seek out information and comfort, and that's what David Henderson was doing. He should have stopped that flight. He had grave concerns. Yeah, I'm kind of like surprised that it was only 18 months as well, but I suppose it, 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 I don't know enough about the charges and what they actually entail, to be honest. So I, I can't really comment on the sentence, but it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of on David Henderson here. Well, well, it is, and I will make it clear in a moment, but I think the, I read all of the sentencing remarks and he could have been sentenced between two and five years. And the judge was quite lenient and did think about suspending the sentence, but decided not to. And yeah, I want to make it clear that although David Henderson was guilty on those two charges, which we mentioned earlier, and he was absolutely in the wrong, he was in no way held accountable for the deaths of David Ibbotson or Emiliano Sala. And the judge made that clear in those sentencing remarks. He was basically guilty of running a cowboy outfit and breaking civil aviation rules. And to be fair to him, he has paid the price. He has served time in prison. He is a, an oldish man and he is living with this on his conscience. And the judge actually referenced how the crash and its aftermath had had a very serious adverse effect on him and three generations of his family. Yeah, I can of course, see that because actually, yeah, he's he's having to go ahead with it almost. Like he would have felt like he had to go ahead with this, but he's then yeah, checking the flight so, radar yeah. and stuff. So obviously a decent person deep down, but was yeah. skirting the law, breaking the law in elements of this. I think he felt some pressure to ensure this flight mm. went ahead because Willie Mackay, the, the kind of guy that had helped to facilitate the transfer of Emiliano to Cardiff City Football Club, he had, Willie had contacted David Henderson and said, you know, I need this flight. And Henderson had arranged lots of flights for him before. He was kind of like a good customer. Um, uh, Willie Mackay was a good customer of David Henderson. So he didn't want to fuck this up, basically, and say, actually, you know, I, I need to get a better pilot or I need a better plane or, you know, I'm I'm just going to have to stop this flight. I'm sorry, Willie, but it's not happening. And Emiliano is not going to make training tomorrow morning. We need to push how, it back yeah, a day. How do you up. say that? He, he couldn't do it. Yeah, it's really hard at the time. Yeah. It's easy with hindsight, isn't it, to just say he should have done this, but it is so much more difficult at the time. So, yeah, there was, you know, it did take a heavy toll on him. Of course it did, but of course not as severe as the effect it had on the families of those who perished in that plane. David Ibbotson, the plane's pilot, was an enthusiastic pilot, but not a very good one. He took risks and he was not licensed to fly that particular plane in those conditions, and he knew that. He had once boasted to a friend about flying a light aircraft over the North Sea at 500 feet. Oh. A hugely dangerous endeavour. Yeah, I mean, there's oil rigs galore in the North Sea. So, yeah, super dangerous. And he was willing to break the law and he knew he was doing just that when he flew Emiliano Sala back and forth across the channel that weekend. Willie Mackay and his sons Mark and Jack had helped to arrange this flight for Emiliano Sala. But they did so in good faith, and as Willie said, I just wanted to try and get the boy home. He had no reason to doubt the credentials of David Henderson. And as I said earlier, David Henderson had arranged many flights for Willie Mackay before. 
So I felt for the Mackays in all of this. I know that Willie said one of his sons was nearly on that flight with Emiliano. And I I don't know the circumstances, but maybe one of his sons was going to head to Nantes with Emiliano that weekend to help him pack his stuff up and prepare him for his return to Cardiff a couple of days later. I, I don't know, but he didn't end up going but Willie very nearly lost a son that weekend. Well, yeah, because if his son speaks French and he's managed to arrange it with his dad, he he might have been like, yeah, I'll come with you, and he gets a little weekend away and stuff. Yeah, yeah. you can understand that you might do yeah. that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so, you know, very close call there. In the aftermath of the crash, FC Nantes retired Emiliano's number nine jersey, and the world mourned the loss of a hugely talented athlete who would have surely brought great things to Cardiff City. As it was just a few months after Emiliano's death, they were relegated, and what followed was a protracted legal argument between Cardiff and FC Nantes about who the player belonged to at the time of his death. You see, Cardiff had signed Emiliano, but they hadn't yet paid the £15 million fee to Nantes. Nantes wanted their money, but Cardiff disputed the deal, saying there were issues with the contract. The matter was referred to the relevant body, and it was ruled that Cardiff would have to pay. And they did. I'm glad they had to pay. Yeah, and I think they they were told they could pay in three instalments and that I think they've just made the last instalment very recently, or the second instalment. Um, so they are paying and they have paid. It was later ascertained that carbon monoxide had leaked into the plane from the exhaust. The plane's heating system had essentially pumped it into the cabin, and that's why Emiliano was unconscious at the time of the crash, and yeah, he wouldn't have felt anything. He wouldn't have known what was going on. David Ibbotson was up front, and he was lightly conscious throughout. We know he sounded lucid when he spoke to Jersey Air Traffic Control just four minutes before the plane went down but it is probable that his judgment was impaired. He probably would have been quite confused towards the end of that flight, probably trying to understand why the plane was descending or whether it was level, those kinds of things. That makes me a bit sad because I, yeah, you know it's only a few minutes and then it carried on going down. So you know it's not very long, but I was kind of having a bit of a hope that maybe that's why it had crashed was the carbon monoxide. And then obviously it isn't. Um, well, yeah, it's so a difficult you, you one because it could. I almost kind of hoped that be. they were both just unconscious and neither yeah. of them felt anything, or but potentially I mean, he, we, we he don't, was aware. We don't really know because David Ibbotson's body has never been found. No autopsy has been performed. When an autopsy was performed on Emiliano, it was it, they ascertained really quickly that there were really high levels of carbon monoxide poisoning. But yeah, we know that um, David would have been conscious. He was lucid four minutes before the plane went down. But he might have lost consciousness between that air traffic control call to Jersey and the plane crashing into the sea. He may have already lost consciousness by Mm. that point. And I think it does, you know, it's David Ibbotson wasn't a great pilot. That is fair to say. Just because someone has died in tragic circumstances doesn't mean we should deify everything about them. We have to be fair and, and say that he wasn't a great pilot. Yeah, he shouldn't have been He was enthusiastic. No, he shouldn't have been flying it. He was breaking the law and he knew that. And he was doing this for payment. He was doing it for money. But it is possible that had that carbon monoxide not leaked into the cabin, then he might have got that plane back into Cardiff Airport and there would have been a very different end to this story, a really normal, positive end. Um, So it might not have been his bad flying that resulted in that crash. It may have purely been the carbon monoxide poisoning. But because no body has been found, we don't know for sure. So a really sad story and it doesn't end there. There is a sickening twist in this case. And I'll be really interested to see whether you, Bethan, or our listeners recall this. In September 2019, CCTV company director and her employee were jailed for illegally accessing footage of Emiliano Sala's body in the mortuary. What? No, I was. I don't yeah, remember this. This is this is just. I would say new level, new levels of depravity. It's not because we've seen worse, but this is 
It's up there. This is just shocking. So Sherry Bray, the company director of Camera Security Services Limited, which is based in Chippenham in Wiltshire, and her employee Christopher Ashford accessed footage of the autopsy being conducted on Emiliano. Bray had sent a message to night worker Ashford before his shift which said, there's a nice one on the table for you to watch when you're next in. Both replayed the clip during separate shifts before Bray took a picture of it on a mobile phone and sent it to a daughter via Facebook Messenger, which led to the photo being widely shared on social media. Oh my god. And after realising that police were investigating, it's shocking. Um, after realising police were investigating, Bray deleted the file from a phone and asked Ashford to do the same. And Judge Peter Crabtree jailed Bray for 14 months and Ashford for five. And he said the pair had been driven by morbid curiosity and went on to say, you both accepted that your deliberate accessing of the computer system, in your case, Ms. Bray, to watch the autopsy of Emiliano Sala live, and in both of your cases to replay the autopsy using the playback facility was, in reality, unauthorised. So... Yeah, Bray had watched this being performed live and had then watched it again and encouraged her colleague, her employee, to watch it. And the judge said, you both well appreciated that there could have been no justification based on any security grounds for doing so. Robert Welling, prosecuting, said Bray had a pivotal role in setting a culture at her workplace where both she and members of staff would watch as and when autopsies were on the mortuary CCTV footage. He added... A culture developed whereby it appears in some ways it was actively encouraged. Oh my gosh. I mean, so this isn't the first time this wasn't because they had no. heard, you know, they are just creeps. They, they There was another, I've not named him, but there was another autopsy that they had watched being performed on a man uh, who is named in the media. So yeah, they'd done it before and there was evidence of that. A victim impact statement from Romina Sala, Emiliano's sister, called Bray and Ashford's actions wicked and evil and said she first found out about the leak when pictures of her brother's body began appearing on Instagram, which she saw. She said, I cannot believe there are people so wicked and evil who could do that. I'll never erase those images from my head. My brother and mother can never forget about this. It's hard for me to live with this image. So this is the worst part of it for me. The family, some of the family have seen these images through no fault of their own. They've not necessarily gone searching for them, even though it'd be their right to do that. They have just been widely circulated on Instagram, on Twitter, and they have come across them. And yeah, you're you're never going to get that image out of your head. And, you know, it goes without saying that this was a catastrophic plane crash. Emiliano had catastrophic injuries to his head and trunk, and he was found under the wreckage of the plane. So, you know, he would not have resembled the brother she knew and loved. And that's her last image of that brother now. It's just, I mean, that is horrible. And yeah, because you you don't know what you're about to see when you're scrolling on social media. You don't know when you get a Google alert come up, what you're going to click on is going to be good, bad or neutral. You just, you like, and obviously she's then shielded potentially her other family members, but she's then got to live with, I've seen this. Like, oh, that's really, really awful. Yeah, it's um, it's a really sad ending. I'm going to bring it to an end here and just to say that the CPS actually described the actions of Bray and Ashford as truly appalling and that sums it up. And yeah, very sadly, there isn't a positive note to end on. There is a legacy from Emiliano that lives on absolutely. But yeah, it's just, it's it's a modern day tragedy. It's absolutely tragic, this case. Oh, this yeah. What what a week, what an episode. Yeah. So thank you for listening and please get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm really hoping to be back next time for something more lighthearted. But I always say it and it never really happens. I'm just sort of drawn to to these really difficult cases. So we'll, well see. Well, I've got something that I think will hopefully lighten next week. And I'm not going to tell you anything and just hopefully hopefully it might even 
make us have a bit of a chuckle, it will be one of those kind of weeks, I'm hoping. Definitely. Okay, well, thank you for listening. And yeah, we'll see you next week for something hopefully lighter. We'll see you then. See you then, guys. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.